0: Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and as most of you know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, Preservationists local musicians and artists and the occasional elected official on some shows like tonight We focus on an individual New York neighborhood Exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history That's not focused on one particular neighborhood on prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from or had lived in New York, about half of them, believe it or not. We've reviewed the history of women activists in the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've explored the history of African Americans in the city, actually going back to the time of the Dutch. And we've also looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, the history of punk and opera in New York. They were separate shows, by the way. And we've explored the city's greatest train stations and even some of its bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we are continuing our journey across the East River to Brooklyn, to one of my favorite neighborhoods in Brooklyn, Cobble Hill. Uh, Our first guest is returning Rediscovering New York regular, Justin Rivers. Justin is the chief experience officer and the lead tour guide for Untapped New York. Justin started his career as a New York City middle school English language arts teacher on the Lower East Side, dragging his students to historic sites across the city in an effort to bring New York City's lesser-known stories to life. He became a co-creator of The Wonder City, a graphic novel that reimagines New York City's entire history. He was also the playwright and producer of The Eternal Space, an off-Broadway play that centered on the demolition of New York City's Pennsylvania station. It was with this production and one simple tweet that he fell head over heels for Untapped New York, whom he partnered with for his remnants of Penn Station Tour, which I have to admit I haven't been on yet, but I gotta do sometime. Uh, along with his role, along with his role as Chief Experience Officer, Justin is the founding director of the Character Connection Initiative. It's a nonprofit that connects character education and mindfulness to middle school curricula. Justin is also the curator and lead guide for some of untapped New York's popular tours, including the underground tour of the subway, the remnants of Dutch New Amsterdam, the secrets of the Brooklyn Bridge, the World's Fair in Flushing Meadow, the secrets of Coney Island, maritime history of New York, the hidden gems of Raphael Guastavino and the art in the New York City subway. Justin, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Great
1: to be here, Jeff.
0: Sorry? I said it's always a lot of fun. Uh, thanks. Uh, and we're all speaking with you remotely. Given the current health crisis, we are maintaining our physical distance. Correct. Um, Sam's in the uh, a virtual studio in the Upper West Side. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Harlem. And Justin and our second guest are broadcasting from Brooklyn. Justin, you're originally from the New York area, aren't you?
1: I am. I was born in uh, Hagensack, New Jersey, right over the George Washington Bridge. Uh, spent a lot of my childhood in northern New Jersey in a town called Ringwood, uh, and then uh, ran out after high school and went to uh, Fordham in the Bronx and never came back. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm sorry if I misgot the. I thought you were uh, uh, coming in from Brooklyn, but you're in the Bronx then.
1: No, no, yeah. oh no, no. Sorry, I'm after Fordham. I, I moved to Brooklyn and then I never came back. So I, no, I have lived in Brooklyn. Okay, in got it. All right.
0: Okay. Okay. Great. Great. So it was you being a teacher on the low recitable places that got you hooked into sharing what's special about New York and its history on a professional level.
1: Yes, very much so. Uh, I had kids, middle school kids. So sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, you know, between the ages of, uh, you know, 10 to 12 who, uh, hated history or what we call social studies. Cause it was boring to them. And I said, you guys live in the most history dense area of the United States. Let's get out of the classroom and let's go see stuff. And, um, I actually realized I like that a lot more than being in the classroom. So (laughs) that's what happened. How long
0: were you a teacher for, Justin, before you changed the focus of your career to going into taking people on uh, trips instead of doing it in the classroom solely?
1: Yeah, I was a full-time middle school teacher for seven years. um, And then I transitioned out of teaching and became a a teaching, I guess what you'd call teaching artist, teaching character, education, and social-emotional learning for another seven years. Uh, and then I transitioned out into um untapped New York uh mm-hmm. about five years ago, so i'm cresting on my my third set of seven <laughs> <So>. oh. <laughs>
0: well, seven's a lucky number, and good yeah. things come in three so it's uh you have a couple of good anniversaries and multiples yeah, yeah. um let's move to cobble Hill for our listeners who aren't completely uh familiar with it it's located it's a neighborhood directly south of brooklyn Heights it 's along the east river um Justin, were there any na- we we people frequently speak about neighborhoods in New York and New York history, um, and start out when Europeans came, but but I always like to to talk about the people who were here before the Europeans came. Um, were any Native Lenape people living in what would become Cobble Hill before the Dutch s- settled it?
1: Yes. Uh, so uh, the area was settled by a subset of the Lenape known as the Kanarsi, and so the Kanarsi Indians were all over and. I know, Jeff, you're in real estate. And if you look at any of the Dutch real estate deals done in and around Manhattan and Brooklyn, they were all sort of brokered by the Canarsie, including Williamsburg, which was one of their biggest in the island of Manhattan. But uh, the Canarsie had settled in an area which they called Gowanus. Actually, we have the name Gowanus and the Gowanus Canal because of the Canarsie. And um, it was a marshy tidal area. Uh, It wasn't a canal back then. It was more like an estuary. And uh, they inhabited the area. It was a good place for hunting. Uh, Fishing, and they did a little farming themselves. Well, I never
0: thought that uh, the real estate brokerage industry predated the Dutch in a way, Um, and maybe even you know it's funny because you know some neighborhoods now were given their names by real estate developers in the sixties and the seventies. So (laughs) Gowanus might have been uh, the case in the seventeenth century. Wow, we should write Mm -hmm. an uh, an article about that sometime.
1: Track the Canarsie. They were very shrewd brokers. Mm -hmm. They were always there, getting a good deal out of the Dutch. So.
0: Oh, okay. Well, it's funny because we, we, we frequently hear that the deals were not so good for native peoples and, uh,
1: but they, um, with the when the English came, it changed very much. The English Mm -hmm. had a heavy hand and obviously started driving them out of their native lands. The Dutch attempted for business reasons to be good business partners with the natives, um, because it was good for business for the, uh, the Dutch West India company. But, um, you know the, the famous story about the brokerage of the island of Manhattan, the twenty four dollar deal, and you know they said it was the whole island. But uh, when the Dutch moved north of Wall Street, there were Canarsie Indians or Lenape Indians waiting to charge them rent every time they moved further north. So they they definitely paid for it. <laughs> so, mm. um, did the Dutch
0: first settle in what became Gowanus? Is it was that the first place that they settled in Brooklyn, or was it in the Heights? Uh, no, the Heights was
1: first, uh, but um, there was a director general, it was the, uh, Wilhelm Kieft was his name, and he was a notoriously pretty awful director general uh, over from New Amsterdam, who was granting uh, farming rights and farming land south of what we know as the village of Brooklyn or Brooklyn Heights, um, which is really sort of the beginning of what we know as Red Hook. Uh, they called it Rudhock. Uh, which I know I'm pronouncing wrong, so I'm sure listeners who know Dutch uh, are going to chastise me, but I try. And our uh, second guest
0: actually lives in Red Hook. Uh, and She'll be on uh, in a little bit.
1: There you go. So uh, Red Hook Lane, where there's actually little uh, remnants of that run through Cobble Hill and then across over into downtown Brooklyn, was one of the first roads uh, to to be put down. Um, and uh, there was a guy named Frederick Lubbertson, who had the biggest farm in what is today Cobble Hill. And because of the land, uh, there was a point at which sort of, there was a hill which was made of rock. Uh, The Dutch called it Poinkiesburg or Poinkiesburg, which basically means rock hill. Um, And then later on it gets Anglicanized to Cobble Hill, which I know we'll talk about in a second more because there's, for a lot of people who live in Cobble Hill in downtown Brooklyn, there's a very famous site that everybody goes to almost once a week there now. We'll talk
0: about that a little later, um, and also the, um, uh, the name Cobble Hill. Uh, uh, it kind of uh, went into disuse for like a century and a half, and then came back in the in, in the 1950s. Yes. Wow. Wow.
1: So what happened was, is that whole area uh, basically after the English after the Revolution, uh, and when Brooklyn Heights started becoming a really upscale bedroom community, um, everywhere south of Brooklyn Heights for a while was just known as South Brooklyn. Hmm. So, no.
0: you know, Justin, one thing that I have a, a penchant for personally is, is I'm interested in, in, in Revolutionary War history. Um, and since the biggest battle of the war was fought in New York and in Brooklyn in particular, it was known as the Battle of Long Island and became known as the Battle of Brooklyn later on. Um, it was fought mostly in what would become Park Slope and the famous evacuation of continental troops was from the riverfront at the East River near where the Brooklyn Bridge is right now. Um, right in the middle of it is Cobble Hill. Was there anything significant that happened in what became Cobble Hill during the war?
1: Very much so. So uh, there was a fortification, as I had alluded to a couple minutes ago, where uh, the South Brooklyn Savings Bank is, which was <coughs> converted into a Trader Joe's, uh, which is why I said a lot of people go there often, including me. Um, and that there was a, a hillish point. It was a very good lookout made from cobble rock, a lot of which was actually thrown off of ballast from ships, but there was also naturally occurring rock there. Um, And it was called for a while the Corkscrew Fort or Smith's Barbette. It was a small little three-pointed sort of fort where you could see very well over to the slope and even pass down to the ocean. Um, So there were troops set up there looking for the British when the British fleet pulled into the harbor They could see very well. They actually sounded the alarm that the British were uh, coming into the harbor from Smith's Barbet there. And uh, what happened was, is during the Battle of New York, as you probably well know, because you're such a fan, uh, you know, Washington was ambushed. And he was ambushed in Park Slope by Battle Pass, which is in Prospect Park today, commemorated by a plaque. And they sort of moved their way to the Heights to leave. The, The idea was get out of Dodge very quickly. He was trapped. So they got to... Um, Smith's Barbet or Cobble Hill or Trader Joe's, whatever you want to call it. And Washington got there and turned around and saw, witnessed the slaughtering of his troops where the old stone house is, uh, basically in Park Slope on 3rd Street and 4th Avenue. Uh, and he just knew he had to get everybody out. Now, to basically cover uh, Washington's retreat, he needed somebody to cover uh, the British coming. So the Maryland regiment, who had come down, or come up from Uh, Maryland basically ran roughshod over the British troops, gave Washington and his remaining troops, which were very uh, battle-leaguer, wary, um, enough time to get to Brooklyn Heights, uh, which is where, again, now what we know as Fulton Landing at the bottom of Fulton Street, and that's where they they left. So it was really at the point of Smith's Barbet or Cobble Hill Fort that Washington decided we need to get out. So it was very important to the battle.
0: In fact, there is a plaque on uh, at Trader Joe's on the old Bank building that commemorates um, that actual happening of, uh, during the war. Sure. Um, there was also some military history or more specifically military preparedness in what would be- become Cobble Hill during the War of eighteen twelve even though New York was never attacked by the British
1: yeah, so New York built a bunch of uh, a series of fortifications, um, including Castle Clinton um, Castle Williams out on Governor's Island, and uh, the British actually took down Cobble Hill fort. Uh, Piece by piece and then after the revolution the americans built it again, Uh, and they called it fort swift Uh, And it was used as part of the installation for 18 war of 1812 But again, none of those forts were ever used they never fired any shots in anger
0: Well many people know of the famous Fulton ferry Justin which ferried people from Brooklyn to Manhattan near where where, it was known Then just New York near where the Brooklyn bridges is anchored uh, across the Fulton Street Uh, There was another ferry established at the foot of Cobble Hill, which was known as the South Ferry. When it was established, what was its significance compared to the Fulton Ferry and the Catherine Street Ferry, which went from uh, present-day Dumbo over to Catherine Street now? That's in the Lower East Side.
1: So uh, there was a big battle, actually, with Manhattan. Manhattan did not want another ferry to uh, be chartered to Brooklyn because they were afraid their, you know, uh, real estate values were going to go down because people were moving to Brooklyn. But uh, when that ferry was established, what you do is you basically create a whole new neighborhood. You know, it's a whole new bedroom community. Uh, Real estate goes up south of, at that time, what was known as District Street, uh, which we know today is Atlantic Avenue. Uh, and, of course, it creates Cobble Hill because there's another direct route from uh, the foot of what was called District Street, basically to uh, south, basically where the um, Staten Island Ferry comes in today. Mm. So it was a huge game changer. Any time at that point you ran a ferry, a neighborhood just popped up uh, in its wake. And that's how Cobble Hill, as the neighborhood we know, basically starts.
0: Oh, Wow. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Justin Rivers of Untapped New York. You're listening to Rediscovering New York. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.
0: Back and you're back to rediscovering New York in our episode about Cobble Hill in Brooklyn. My first guest is Justin Rivers, who's the chief experience officer and lead tour guide for Untapped New York. Um, Justin, I wanted to ask you a particular question about your tours. It's a very challenging time right now for uh, for tour companies, for all businesses, but you know especially for 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 businesses like yours. Um, what kind of programming have you been able to do? With the present physical distancing requirements, and what could our listeners, if they are interested, look forward to as far as uh, uh, tuning into Untapped New York?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for asking, Jeff. Um, Untapped New York uh, quickly decided at the beginning of the pandemic, in the middle of March, that you know we knew we weren't going to be able to do in-person programming, uh, so we switched to virtual. Uh, and so we have an insiders; uh, it's called the Untapped New York Insiders. It's a membership-based program. Um, And what we are doing now is we're offering uh, two months membership free with the code stay home in all caps. And what you can get is we do about three to four virtual tour events a week, talks with authors. We're actually doing some uh, virtual zoom tours. Some guides are out in the streets and in the parks doing stuff with zoom on their phones. It's been working really well. Uh, And uh, converting a lot of our experiences into zoom experiences, which is, been going great. So um, actually, we've had a lot of our insiders say, hey, when the pandem- uh, pandemic restrictions are lifted, please don't get rid of the virtual stuff. We kind of love it. So,
0: oh. Well, full disclosure, I am an insider <laughs> of Untapped New York. I pay my monthly subscription fee, and I'm glad to uh, get the content. Um, how, uh, how can our listeners find out about your programming? Where should they go?
1: So they can go to untappedcities.com uh, uh, and uh, slash insiders or right on our uh, homepage you'll see the insiders uh, drop down menu and it'll tell you all about the stay home promotion and all of our virtual events i'm doing a talk tomorrow we have a talk thursday we have a talk friday almost every day of the week we have something going on for uh, for people who are home and want to still get out into new york in some way
0: well it, it's great to keep the new york um uh, uh lantern alive you know yeah. for people who want to who want to come into the harbor and find out more about the city even though they may be 10,000 miles away. I know. Um, getting back to Cobble Hill, when would we begin to see the the neighborhood develop into the place that we would recognize today?
1: So basically, um, that ferry that we were talking about before the break was put in in 1825. Uh, it was actually re- responsible by a guy named Charles Hoyt, which is why we have a Hoyt Street, by the way, um, in Brooklyn. And uh, so by the 1830s into the 1840s, what we get is... This brownstone row house, very well planned out, mapped out urban area um, that we start knowing. And a lot of the buildings today in Cobble Hill are from that era 1830s, 40s, and 50s.
4: Mm.
0: Well, I, I do want to talk about some non row house development in a minute, but um, first I want to talk about some very great family history in Cobble Hill. In fact, one of the parents of the great British politician and wartime leader, Winston Churchill, Uh, who actually would have been entitled to American citizenship because of his parentage. Uh, His mother was from Cobble Hill. Uh,
1: Yeah. So I think this is one of Cobble Hill's greatest secrets. I always tell uh, Cobble Hill residents of which I have a bunch of friends uh, and I spend more time in Cobble Hill than I do in my own neighborhood um, that without Cobble Hill, there'd be no Winston Churchill. Uh, So his mom, Jenny Jerome, was the daughter of a very uh, rich New Yorker, bon vivant up there with the Vanderbilts and actually a good friend of the Belmonts. Uh, Leonard Jerome. And for a time period in the beginning of Jerome's uh, rise to riches, they lived in Cobble Hill. He and the Jerome family uh, spent some time bouncing between two houses actually in Cobble Hill. And uh, Jenny Jerome is born at 197 Amity Street, which is again, right behind Trader Joe's. It's all Trader Joe's. Uh, And around the corner, and the house is still there. Um, And uh, yeah, without, without that house and without Cobble Hill, we'd have no Winston Churchill. I'm curious. How did
0: Jenny Jerome wind up moving to to Britain? Did she go over to uh, uh, to marry Randolph Churchill, or did she uh, did she just go there and then met him and fell in love with him? What how did that happen?
1: It's a very interesting story, which you could probably do a whole show about. So I'll encapsulate it in about ten seconds, uh, twenty seconds. Um, Jenny Jerome was beautiful. Actually, her mother was Native American or had Native American blood, so she had this very dark, swarthy look to her. And uh, Leonard Jerome was rich as Croesus. I mean, he had more money than God. And the landed gentry in Britain was dirt poor. The, the Churchill gentry did not have a lot of money. So um, Lord Randolph thought she was gorgeous. And of course, the Churchill said, great, she's, she's rich, you know, marry her. Uh, and so what happened was, is the Churchills actually took the Jerome, or brought the Jerome money into their sphere. And uh, it was a match made in heaven, as far as they were concerned, because again, they were—they basically got a big cash infusion with Jenny. But um, Winston was their first child, and he was born premature, uh, not soon after they married. So you could put the pieces together.
0: Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yes, we all know that story in history. It's a, a little bit like a modern Downton Abbey, with a, a rich American uh, dowry right. being paid to to help rescue the family estate. Very much. Um, I'd like to get to to, uh, uh, a New Yorker, Alfred Treadway White. Who was he and how did he impact the development of housing in Cobble Hill?
1: Alfred Treadway White is a very interesting uh, character in New York history and uh, Brooklyn history, too. So he was a sort of a rich um, philanthropist in a way. And he wanted to give back to Brooklyn in a lot of ways. And he was a big sponsor of the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens, actually. Um, that was uh, one of his big claims to fame, but he had decided that he wanted to contribute to the working class uh, a more humane way of living, because the working class were living in tenements, you know, six or seven, eight, ten rooms, uh, no running water, no outdoor space. Um, so he teams up with uh, William Field and Son to devise or design a, a series of housing apartment-style uh, living that um, he calls a great experiment. Now, uh, it is still there today. It's actually one of the most interesting buildings. You could see it from the BQE. Um, it is, uh, today I believe it's called the, um, is it the Cobble Hill Muse? I always forget what the modern name of it is. You, Jeff, you may know more so than I, but it's uh, It's a very interesting um Building And then there are 35 cottages or 34 cottages right built next to the tower. So it was called the tower very simply. And then it was called the cottages, um, which is why I'm blanking on the, on the, the name of it today.
0: And uh, well, Cobble Hill Muse is actually on Atlantic Avenue. I'm um, blanking yes, for a second, I, but I'll come i come up.
1: That, I know that name is not right. It's Cobble,
0: Hill I, uh, Cobble Hill Towers.
1: Cobble Hill Towers.
0: And it looks like the tower. It almost looks like a prison.
1: But. It does. It looks like it's got the turrets. It looks very cast yeah. um from, from the highway and it, it's got the red brick and it's it's very it's very different. But uh what he did in those towers was provide uh, running water to each of the units. Um there were garbage disposals or garbage chutes to so wow. get rid of their garbage um humanely. And of course, this is in you know the eighteen seventies, so this was huge. Um, and he really did change the style of living for the working class. Now, he would come out himself and say, don't, don't lionize me or saint me yet. I'm doing this because I think there's a lot of money in it. He thought that by sponsoring this and designing this prototype, that people all across the country and urban areas would want to buy this design uh, and, and use it. So he, he actually thought it was going to be a good money-making venture as well.
0: It sounds like the story of the Cherokee apartments in Yorkville as well. That kind Very of similar,
1: yes. Yes, very similar.
0: Well, let's talk about the Atlantic Avenue Tunnel. It's, it's more than 150 years old, and it was hidden and forgotten for more than a century until recently. You want to talk about the tunnel for a bit?
1: God, I love it. I love talking about the tunnel mainly because I was one of the last people to be in it. Um, uh, Bob Diamond, uh, who was a historian who discovered the tunnel in 1981, was running regular tours until uh, the FDNY picked them out um, in i believe it was 2009 and i went in uh, early 2009 so the atlantic avenue tunnel is considered to be the world's first subway uh guinness book of world records called it that even though it is uh technically an underground railroad tunnel
0: is it older but, than the metropolitan uh, line in in london
1: yes it is oh. so um It was and that's, you know, the metro line in London gets credit because the late 1860s it opens. But this tunnel was built in 1844 Um, and it was built again after the ferries started running to Atlantic Avenue. Um, There was a company called the Brooklyn and Jamaica Railroad. The Brooklyn and Jamaica Railroad is the precursor to the LIRR, the Long Island Railroad today. Uh, And they offered service from lower Manhattan to Boston. And this is how they did it. I absolutely love this because you've got to think of just how crazy this is. They get people on ferries at South Street. They take the South Street ferry over to the base of Atlantic Avenue. They put them in a train. The train would go under this tunnel uh, for about a quarter of a mile, half a mile under Atlantic Avenue. It would emerge and go all the way out to the North Fork of Long Island, where then they would get on a ferry and then go over to Connecticut and continue train service to Boston. Uh, lightning speed. But the reason why the tunnel was built was because the foot of Atlantic Avenue was a very fashionable street, Uh, very rich. The businesses were very rich. It catered to a very rich clientele. And they hate, they didn't want the noise and the soot pollution from the the steam trains. So they forced them underground.
0: Well, that's like the story of Grand Central, except about the uh, burying the tracks under Fourth Avenue to Game Park 50 years earlier.
1: Correct. Correct. Mm. And it wasn't, this was less of a safety issue, you know, Vanderbilt for, for many reasons, but including safety. So many people were getting killed by those trains. Um, But it only lasted till about 1853. It it didn't last very long. And then they sealed it up and it gets lost to history. In 1981, Bob Diamond, I think he was in his twenties at the time. um, He heard a radio show. uh, I think it was the Cosgrove report where he heard about a guy talking about John Wilkes Booth burying something in this tunnel uh, in Brooklyn, and they're you know this train tunnel, and he goes, "What are you talking about?" So he did a lot of uh, research. He found old schematics from the Brooklyn and Jamaica Railroad, and one July night, he um, goes to the gas guys. They're working under Atlantic Avenue. He slips some some money, and he says, "You don't see me here." And he basically busts through. He goes under the manhole. He busts through the wall and he discovers the tunnel and it was his discovery. He, he obviously became uh, sort of a legend because of it. And he was giving tours uh, of the tunnel uh, until 2009. And they're absolutely amazing. He got national geographic television. They were just about to do a documentary because he said, there's an old 1834 locomotive walled up down there. He got all the, the show ready to go. And New York said, absolutely not. You can't bring people down there anymore. Um, one of the most unique tours I've ever been on in my life. Just to give the listeners who, who didn't get to experience it, you had to line up along the Trader Joe's on Atlantic Avenue. And when the light changed in the middle of the intersection of Court and Atlantic, you had about a minute and a half to run out to the middle of the street and crawl down into the manhole. To get into the tunnel, wow. and they had guys regulating it. So there was about four or five people at a time, and if you were the first in, you were down in that tunnel for an hour and a half before the tour even started, um, because they had to get everybody in, and it took over an hour <laughs> with the light changing. Absolutely insane!
0: Wow, I hope there was a porter sand down there, but anyway, we have up, uh, not we... Even
1: you have to bring your own flashlights.
0: <laughs> oh. Um, we're almost out of time, Justin. I wanted to yep. talk about a couple of things in the minute or so we have left. Um, Cobble Hill had a couple of first one is that the first teaching hospital was in Cobble Hill. It was first the Brooklyn German General Dispensary, and then it became Long Island College Hobbs Hospital in 1858. Sadly, the hospital closed in 2014. Um, the people, Most people have heard of Manhattan's Restaurant Row. That's on West 46th Street. Brooklyn has its own Restaurant Row as well. Uh, It's on Smith Street in Cobble Hill. I want to finish our discussion of of the neighborhood by by talking about another first that Cobble Hill has, a Vest Pocket Park. What is a Vest Pocket Park?
1: Yeah, so this was the first Vest Pocket Park. It's a uh, community-designed and um, curated park, basically. So another famous Vest Pocket Park in uh, New York is uh, Grand Ferry Park uh, in Williamsburg. It's basically the community takes some land. They claim it as park space for themselves until the Parks Department actually uh, deems it officially a, a New York City park.
0: And this happened before the community gardens that we see in Harlem and Lower East Side and, and yes yeah, so Village 19, that
1: I believe it was nineteen sixty four it was officially uh, brought on as a park. And you know, you go to Cobble Hill Park and it's a gorgeous park. It's beautifully laid out uh, veranda place. It looks like you're in London. And it looks like it's been there since the 1740s. And absolutely not. It was put in in the 1960s. It was going to be turned into a supermarket. Hmm. There was a church on that spot. It got pulled out. Wow. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, Justin Rivers, thank you so much. Uh, our first guest on this show about Cobble Hill has been Justin Rivers. Justin is the Chief Experience Officer and Lead Tour Guide for Untapped New York. You can find out about all their great programming at untappedcities.com. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with our second guest who owns a business in Cobble Hill. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
0: We're back. And you're back to Rediscovering New York. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, Mortgage Specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Masiaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate, Good Morning, New York, with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Holstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, please email me, Jeff at York.nyc. One other note before we get to our next guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property, including in Cobble Hill. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our next guest is Jamie Erickson. Jamie is the founder and owner of Poppy's Catering and Poppy's Cafe. Jamie opened Poppy's in 2012 with a mission to create simple, seasonal, beautiful, and approachable food. Since then, Poppies has catered for some of the biggest names in fashion, as well as numerous other corporate and private clients. As a fourth-generation New Yorker, Jamie named Poppies after her grandfather, Leo, who was a well-known counterman at New York City's famous B&H Dairy. I used to have lunch at B&H all the time when I lived in the East Village. That's great. Um, food and hospitality has, has always been in Jamie's blood, and with Poppies, Jamie hopes to continue his legacy. With opening of Poppy's Cafe on DeGraw Street, Jamie loves meeting neighbors and customers face-to-face and seeing being a part of nourishing the Brooklyn community. Jamie and her husband, Kevin, live in Red Hook with their son, Dylan, and daughter, Riley. Jamie Erickson, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You originally grew up in New York on the Lower East Side specifically.
4: I sure did. I grew up down on Grand Street in the FDR Drive.
0: Ah, did did you ever have Justin as your teacher in school? Or, uh...
4: I didn't actually, but I loved hearing about that. My, I was wondering what school you were teaching at, but I didn't go to school on the Lower East Side. I ended up shuffling over to Greenwich Village in Chelsea when I was a kid. But my mom was a teacher in PS110 on Delancey Street, which is where she grew up and went to school as well.
0: Oh, so, wow. You know, I'm also a fourth generation New Yorker. Well, I'm I'm second to fourth depending on the line, depending yeah. on the lineage. Um actually the Italian side is uh fourth generation, my Eastern European Jewish side, that's that's second generation. Got it. Um what had you and your husband decide to to move to and live in Red Hook?
4: That happened, I mean, I moved to Cobble Hill in 2006. So we moved to four apartments within Cobble Hill and Carroll Gardens before finally moving to Red Hook. And it was because we had my first child, Dylan, we were basically tired of the walk-up situation with the heavy stroller and we got much more space and one floor in Red Hook. So it was still really close commute for me for my business, which was always really important because I was only a four-minute walk originally when I opened Poppies in 2012. Wow. Wow.
0: Is poppy's your first business,
4: Jamie? It is. What had you decided to
0: go into your own business?
4: Um, I was always in food and had been for a number of years and just basically felt as though it was in my blood to start something myself. I was, you know, within an industry like that, once you're a manager and I was still pretty young It felt like you were at the top unless you were going to be the owner as the next move. So I had that entrepreneurial itch and spirit within me. And I was really fortunate enough to have had an ex boss who believed in me and was able to give me the initial funding um, to start the business. So,
0: how long had it been that you were running your catering company before you decided to open up uh, a retail spot in Cobble Hill?
4: So, the retail spot is actually interesting because was a pop-up then it was a weekend cafe and a pop-up
0: originally wow that's uh that's something
4: i'll give it it was the the space where the cafe is was the first location where um poppies existed but we were catering only so the doors were locked it's a super charming Mm. cafe space um and we only catered out of there, and just to kind of back up a little bit, I had been living in Cobble Hill for a long time, patronizing places that were within that space. It had flipped over maybe four times before I ended up taking it over, so it was a place I always had my eye on. I coveted it, and um, you know, I'm a numbers person, I'm a business person, and I was trying to figure out why on this you know, it's a super charming space, but it's a side street. It's not on the main Smith Street and Court Street. So it just wasn't gaining enough foot traffic, perhaps for previous businesses. Um, And so when I took it over, plenty of neighbors gave me their feedback that it was a cursed space and good luck. And, you know,
0: but that didn't stop you.
4: (laughs) It didn't stop me, but it gave me the drive that it was going to be catering first. And that would be a business that would help me take off. And so I wasn't going to be relying necessarily on the neighborhood and the foot traffic coming by. But instead, it was actually a pretty well-located spot between the tunnel and the bridge to get into the city, which was all my kind of corporate background in in catering. Um, So we hustled into the city. I was the one driving, delivering, rolling up to the uh, loading docks every single day at these buildings um, and hustled our way in. So two years after we had been doing that in this small space, we took over a larger production kitchen um, on the other side of the BQE. And on DeGraw Street, where our cafe is now, it gave us the kind of space. It, it gave us more space there to be able to say, you know what, let's finally create a little pop-up for the neighborhood who our neighbors had always been walking by with a locked door wondering what we were doing behind there. So secret,
2: the secret,
0: the, the Cobble Hill catering secret until your doors yeah. open to the public.
4: So, I mean... I was, you know, I I lived in the neighborhood. I knew who the um, people were, you know, who my neighbors were. A lot of us were young creatives. I found young families. Um, And I'll also note that Poppy's is on DeGraw Street, which uh, Justin can probably attest to more, but I think it's that final street before it turns into Carroll Garden. So I kind of am on that cusp between the two. So you have Old school Italians um, and families who've grown up there for generations and then a lot of the new families that have moved in. but you found that most people were creatives heading to the F train going into the city, and it was pretty quiet during the week. so, the reason why I never opened it up as a full-time cafe was because I was like, who's even here to patronize this place? You can um, see that within this neighborhood, um, a lot of restaurants and food places do struggle that serve daytime um, lunches and things like that. There's not that many restaurants that are open for those hours because it's not a business just district. So backing up. We just did it as a pop-up because catering was our main business. And we thought of it, you know, let's do this on occasion when we have time to let the neighborhood finally taste the quality of our food. And perhaps it would expand our um, catering clientele. And sure enough, it did. The demand was there. And year after year, we just kind of dipped our toe into it a little bit more. So March 20th of this year, we were finally about to break ground, do construction, and be ready to be open as a full-time cafe. But the world had different plans for us. So mm. hopefully we get back to that eventually.
0: Well, hopefully, yes. We're uh, New York City is uh, supposed to go into phase one of reopening New York uh, next Monday, six days from now, June 8th. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jamie Erickson of Poppy's Catering and Cafe. You're listening to Rediscovering New York.
2: Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. talkingalternative.com
0: back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York and this episode about Cobble Hill in Brooklyn. Uh, My second guest is Jamie Erickson, founder and owner of Poppy's Catering and Poppy's Cafe. Jamie, what are some of your favorite dishes that you prepare for catering and some of the ones that you're really known for?
4: What we're definitely known for and what I try to um, set us apart from any place else when we first opened in 2012 was the quality of the food we offer and the aesthetic. So a plat a poppy's platter to many people in the neighborhood, they can tell that it's ours at every kid's birthday party, anniversary, birthday celebration, <clears throat> the herb bundles, the cheese boards, everything has a very <clears throat> similar, we call it the the poppy, uh popify the p- platter. So popify
0: the platter, I love it.
4: Popify the platter means make it extra Extra pretty, cute, tons of earth. Um, so our grazing boards became super signature for us. A lot of the other foods that we offer, we changed our menus daily. So it was hard to always pick one signature thing. But there's a lot of um, influences of Mediterranean flavors. We uh, work with some of the greatest purveyors locally to get seasonal vegetables um, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania and upstate New York in the Finger Lakes. So, we definitely change our menus daily, seasonally and are very well known for that as well.
0: Oh, wow. I'd like to talk about Cobble Hill for a bit. Um describe the vibe of Cobble Hill. What do you like about the neighborhood, Jamie?
4: I always loved the neighborhood. So, I grew up in New York City and ran away to Colorado for college. When I moved back to New York, what I was dreaming of was some place charming that felt like a neighborhood, um, that just didn't feel like the New York city I knew and grew up in, in Manhattan. Cobble Hill was what I stumbled upon and fell in love with. Um, so it's super charming. It was very rare to find a neighborhood that was, um, all, you know, pretty low rise buildings. Um, to go out to bars and restaurants or even the local gym and feel like the people you ran into, you would see over and over again versus it feeling like an influx of just people from all over the place. Like it was when I'd go to bars on the Lower East Side or something like that. So I just love the community and neighborhood feel of it always. um, Mm. And it felt like the right place to start a family.
0: And you moved there in 2006 before you opened your business. Um, Do you think Cobble Hill has changed since you first moved there in 2006?
4: Dramatically. I don't think there's many places that um, a lot of the restaurants and bars that existed then do not exist now. Um, It definitely has changed in a price point. You could speak on behalf of that from a real estate standpoint. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We kept moving. My husband and I, and mind you, I my first street that I lived on was Dean Street, and my husband owned a bar behind it on. Pacific. Where on
0: Dean Street did you live? My uh, cousin used to live on Dean Street, right off Nevin Street. Okay. He owned the house a long time I was ago. Right
4: off of Borum Place, between Borum and Smith. Super. Charming, okay. Your bar to back is up the street from there. <sighs> and um, met my husband because he owned a bar behind my house. So that's how. So Cobble Hill was how we met. Go figure. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's changed in that we couldn't afford it. We kept moving further and further into Carroll Gardens at the time because it was like anything closer to Atlantic Avenue became less affordable. And over the years, um, we just kept getting bumped back. But I can see it. I can feel it. A dramatic shift and change in the clientele that come to patronize us at Poppy's. And, you know, now raising kids, you see it in the schools and it's just, it's, it's changing a lot.
0: Mm. Um, Are most of the customers in Poppies, do they live in Cobble Hill or do they also come from, from outside the neighborhood to, to patronize your business?
4: I would say majority of them do live in, um, maybe not just Cobble Hill, but Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn Heights, all of the neighboring Boreham Hill. So. We get a seventy eight percent return rate of customers, but um through I would definitely say that on the weekends, especially people will come in from other areas and followers through Instagram will definitely make it a stopping point, but the majority of our customers are definitely our neighbors
0: hmm. i'd like to ask you a crim change in Cobble Hill you know hopefully when uh, the health crisis uh is dealt with effectively. Um, life will go back to normal for as much of us as as and know the things that we love as much as possible. Um, but we talked a little bit uh, before the show yesterday about um, about how the neighborhood has changed. You want to share with some of your observations about how Cobble Hill has changed during during the health crisis?
4: Well, it was interesting because to run a cafe um, when we used to come across holiday weekends like Memorial Day or we were going into the summer, we basically could expect a decline of 30 plus percent of business because the type of people who live in the neighborhood typically are the ones leaving on those weekends. So it was definitely interesting to now approach reopening in a neighborhood that you could just feel people have like up and left with their families. So there's definitely, I mean, we have reopened. We're a curbside cafe currently. Um, The people who are around are, and have been so supportive of our reopening. Um, But I would say that's the main thing is that I can just see a mass exodus of people. Um, A lot of people who are choosing to leave the city and the neighborhood for good. Um, But there's a a lot of people who are missing, I'll say that.
0: Well, oh, my next couple of questions will be pre-COVID. Okay. Um, is there, as a business owner and also someone who's lived in Cobble Hill or had lived in Cobble Hill for um, beginning fourteen years ago, was there anything that uh, uh, any surprises that you encountered after you were settled or after you opened your businesses?
4: Any surprises? Oh goodness! Well, no. we can.
0: All right. Well, I, I I like to do a couple of trick questions, <laughs> make it seem like I'm doing my job. Um, As a business owner, is there anything, and also pre COVID, is there anything that you struggle with in Cobble Hill?
4: The thing that we struggle with the most as a food business is that it isn't um, a business district. So, and because you don't get it, because you don't have as many high rise buildings. It's a struggle of if we were to open every day of the week or be open full time, how can you capture enough people within that area to support you and maintain the business and numbers that you need on a daily basis? Um, So for us, we're lucky that we have catering as a backbone to it, but it's always been a struggle within a lot of um, local small shops if they don't have e-commerce or something like that. That's why you see so much turnover um, in the food industry in that area.
2: Mm.
4: Badly.
0: Well, aside from wanting more customers, which a lot of businesses do as a business owner, is there anything that you, w- and this is pre COVID also, yeah. is there anything that you wish was in Cobble Hill that wasn't a particular kind of business or a particular kind of service that you would like to see in the neighborhood?
4: Um. I don't know. I've actually always found that Cobble Hill had pretty much everything I needed. I, (laughs) I, I had Union Market as my supermarket really close to me. As Justin said, everybody goes to Trader Joe's right there. We have a movie theater. It really, to me, oh, I always lived within that block radius of Dean to um, DeGraw, Carroll Street. I found that I'd never had to go into the city on the weekends. And it really has so many wonderful mom and pop local shops to patronize, um, great parks, it, it's really um, gyms. It kind of had everything we needed at the time. So,
0: well, we're almost out of time, Jamie, but I have one other question I want to ask you. If anyone is listening to this and they're thinking about, hey, I'd, I'd like to open up a business in Cobble Hill. Um, is there any advice that you have for someone who is looking to open up a business in the neighborhood?
4: The neighborhood um, and the people that live of Cobble Hill and Carroll Gardens are wonderfully supportive. Um, If you want to open a business, depending on what it is, I would give the same advice I just gave. As long as you have some other options for um, offering people outside of the neighborhood, if there's not enough patrons right there, um, as far as it being a charming and wonderful place to be, I would absolutely suggest that neighborhood
0: oh great well thank you um my second guest on this episode about cobble hill has been jamie erickson of poppy's catering and poppy's cafe jamie what's your web address for people interested in finding out about uh, your offerings
4: Poppiesbrooklyn.com. you can follow us on instagram at poppy's brooklyn um and we're getting back to online offerings, and we'll update you through Instagram on anything as we approach our business again in a post-COVID life. So, thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being a guest on the show, and also thanks to our first guest, Justin Rivers, who's the Chief Experience Officer and Lead Tour Guide at UNTAP, New York. We've just finished this week's trip to Cobble Hill. Um, If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at Rediscovering You can like us on Facebook. That handles Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Imagine that, an original name, I know. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, including in Cobble Hill, where we have an office, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storrier. Our engineer is Sam Lee Woods. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
2: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com.
3: Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness?
5: Every Tuesday live at 7pm we focus on a particular neighbourhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7pm on talkradio.nyc.
2: You're listening to The Talking Alternative Network.